Chapter 47 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 47 Toadstools. We arranged that our watchman, as my uncle called him, thinking it much more respectable than spy, should hire a room from our friend Mrs. Wilcox, who could help him in many ways, for she knew all the habits of the house of Bullrag and had useful friends in the kitchen there, and could introduce Tonks to a distant view of the adversary's mother and sisters. All this being settled and everybody else in good spirits about it, I fell suddenly into deep dejection, not on account of Sam Henderson's good luck, for that I rejoiced in and would not think of, but simply from dwelling on my own hard fate and the sympathy aroused by it among all who knew me, for as time went on I was pitied more and more, and our neighbors one and all would make up their minds that there never had been a more unlucky fellow, and especially the women looked at me in such a way that when I could avoid them without rudeness it seemed to be a comfort to have business round the corner. This began to tell upon me more and more, for as no man can see all the world for himself, but must take his view of it from other people's eyes, so even in his own affairs he finds their color affected by the light or shade that others cast upon them, and labor as I might to think that everyone was wrong, and ought to be compelled to keep his mind to his own business. Yet when I had made all this most certain to myself, a frosty fog and gloom of doubt would settle on my spirits and wrap me in a world of wonder having no straight road in it, and what with one state of mind and another, sometimes the pangs of memory and sometimes the stings of fury, and worst of all the heavy ache of listlessness and loneliness, upon the whole it seemed less harm to be out of life than in it. How it might have ended I know not, if it had not been for something which I took to be an accident, and of no importance to me than any other meeting. One evening after sunset, as the days were drawing in, though the summer was still in its power and beauty. I was taking my usual lonely walk in Love Lane, as the young people called it. There had not been a night, whether fine or wet, from the time of my loss to this moment, that I had failed of this lonely walk, unless I was far from Sunbury. It was some little comfort to end the day in pacing to and fro where last, so far at least as knowledge went, my kitty's footsteps must have been. And now when the sunset tint was gone and the sky could be looked into like clear glass and the tranquility of summer night and flutter of a leaf might almost seem to be caused by the twinkle of a star, I, the only unquiet creature, according to the laws of man, was treading the same restless round and thinking the same endless thoughts as when the storm of evil fortune had been fresh upon me, wrapped in my own cares alone and breathing only for myself, for absorbing love in small men is but selfishness by deputy, and I, in all but outward form, had been a small man always. Here I plotted without heed of grandeur, goodness, or the will of God. But things are strangely brought about, and any one not remembering this might laugh to hear how I was enlarged, and for the moment more ennobled than by all the stars of heaven through the sight of a white cotton handkerchief a man climbed over a gate into the lane, stiffly raising one leg first, and then after a little pause the other, as if his active days were gone. And probably I should not have seen him, for all his clothes were black, 
unless he carried a white handkerchief. This was conspicuous in the dark of the overhanging foliage, and it seemed to be doubled up by the corners and bulging with some bulk inside. What can he have got in that? thought I, and hastened my steps to see, although it was no concern by rights of mine. Good evening, Mr. Kitt. Excuse me, Mr. Orchardson, I mean. This was said in a kind and gentle voice, and I took off my hat, for I saw that it was our parson, the Reverend Peter Golightly, not our vicar, who was absent for the summer, but the curate in charge of our parish. What a calm and beautiful night, he resumed. It takes one out of one's self, almost. It makes our sorrows seem so small. He might have talked like this for an hour without any effect of that sort on me, if he had not finished with a heavy sigh, in spite of all the solace of the scene. Then I knew that he referred to his own grief, which was a dark and bitter one. He had lost his wife just before he came to us, and now it was said that his only child, a graceful girl of about fifteen, was pining away with some mysterious illness, and would take no food, and he, an old man of threescore and five, of feeble frame and requiring care, must finish his earthly course alone, poor and forlorn, and with none to love him. I hope Miss Bessie is a little better, I said very softly, for I felt rebuked in my health and strength by a grief like this. No, I fear not. She fancies nothing. As I came back from visiting poor Nanny Page, I saw some fine mushrooms in the footpath field, and it struck me that possibly my child would like them, though they are not very nourishing or wholesome food. But if we could get her to eat anything— and I have a special style of cooking them, but it was nearly dark when I gathered them, and I scarcely know the true from the poisonous. I was going to ask Dr. Sippets, but I fear he would forbid them altogether. You could do me a great favor, if you would, just to look these over for me. This I undertook with the greatest pleasure, and I asked him to come to my cottage for the purpose, where we could procure a light." and I was pleased that he did not in any way attempt to talk goody, as our people call it, nor even refer to my lonely condition, though I knew by the softness of his manner that it was present to his mind. The reverend gentleman had collected his booty in too Catholic a spirit, mingling with the true agaric, some very fine horse mushrooms, and even one or two poisonous toadstools. Having packed all the good ones in a tiny punnet, which looked more enticing than his handkerchief, I carried them for him to his own door, and obtained leave to call on the morrow, and ask whether the young lady had been tempted. My uncle Corney was one of that vast majority of good Britons, which could never forbear the most obvious joke, even when it is least attractive. The most fastidious people in the world could scarcely call him vulgar, which used to be a favorite word with them, because he could let them call him what they liked and be none the worse for it. They might just as well blame a dog for loving liver, or a cat for believing that heaven is milk, as fall foul of my Uncle Corney because he ate the onions of very common jokes. He liked to make a laugh, and when he failed, he perceived that the fault was upon the other side. I thought it a capital thing, he told me, when I was half awake last night, for I never sleep now as I used to do. If you go on like this, you'll have to answer to the parish for it. What right have you to change our parson's name? 
I saw by the wag of his nose that he was indicting of some cumbrous joke, and I let him take his time about it. How slow you are. Can't you see, Kit? His proper name is Govolightly, and you are making him go heavily. Well, never mind. I can't expect you to see anything just now. I suppose you never mean to laugh again. Certainly not at such stuff as that. What am I doing to disturb him? Why, you're getting into talks together, and heavy proceedings about probations, and trials, and furnaces of affliction, and all that sort of stuff, as I call it, instead of coming to have your pipe with me. There has not been a word of the sort, I answered, wondering how he could be so small. Mr. Golightly leaves all that for the Methodists. He is a churchman. And not only that, but he is a man of true courage and real faith in God. If he could only give me a hundredth part of what he has, how different I should be. And he never talks about it, but I know that it is in him. Without a single word he has made me thoroughly ashamed of the way I go on. Look at him. The poor old man can scarcely climb a gate or lift a chair, and who sees his one delight in this world pining and waning to the grave before him? Yet does he ever moan and groan and turn his back on his fellow creatures? Not he. He sets his face to work, with a smile that may be sad, but is at any rate a pleasant one, and he gives all his time to help poor people, who are not half so poor as he is. I call him a man, and I call myself a cur. Come, come, that's all nonsense, Kit. I'm sure you have borne your trouble well, though you have been crusty now and then. And you can't say that I have not made allowance wonderfully for you. And here you are, ready to throw me over, because this man, whose duty it is and who is paid for doing it, sets a finer example than I do. I don't call that a Christian thing. Let him come and grow fruit and have to sell it, and if he keeps his temper then and pays all his hands on a Saturday night and sets a better example than I do, I burst out laughing. It was very rude, for my uncle was much in earnest, but I could not help it and after staring at me with a vacant countenance, he gave three great puffs of tobacco and smiled as if he was sorry for me. Well, take him another bunch of grapes, he said with true magnanimity. I am glad that the poor maid enjoys them, and they are come down now to fifteen pence. Thus I was taken, without deserving any such consolation, into a higher life than my own in a very different tone of thought. The bitterness and moody rancor which had been encroaching on me yielded to a softer vein of interest and sympathy in sorrows better born than mine. The lesson of patience was before me, told in silence and learned with love, and it went into me all the deeper because my pores were open. But in spite of all that, I saw no way to sudden magnanimity. It is not sensible to suppose that any man can forego his ways and jump in a sudden exaltation just because he comes across people of higher views than his. Women seem to compass often these vast enlargements of the heart, but a man is of less spongy fiber if he is fit to marry them. It had been admitted by Tabby Tapscott, even in her crossest moments, that I was a man as any woman could look up to if she chose and the very best of them must not be asked to do that to a man who is like themselves. And so I continued pretty stiff outside, 
and resolved to have my rights, which is the only way to get them. Here comes Tony, exclaimed my uncle on the following Saturday night. Time for him to show something for his money. If there is anything I call unfair, it is to pay for a thing before you get it. He will prove to his own satisfaction that he has worked it out, of course. When you were at Ludred about Sam's wedding, you should have fixed your aunt to something. Your fifty pounds is nearly gone, and she never gave you another penny. I don't see why I should pay for it like this, and the French stuff is in the market already. What's the good of being an Englishman? And what's the good of being an Englishwoman? I answered, for I thought him too unjust, as he had not paid a sixpence yet, unless she is allowed to dress sometimes and be told that she is twenty years younger than she is. Aunt Parslow looked fit to be a bridesmaid quite, and she will come down handsomely when she has paid her bills. She looked at her checkbook, and she said as much as that. And let her do it, said my uncle shortly. I suppose this spy fellow will expect his supper. Eat he can, and no mistake. The smaller a man is, the more he holds. You had better run down to the butcher's. Mr. Tonks might have heard him, but he made no sign, only coming up quietly with his tall hat on, and taking a chair which stood opposite to ours, for the weather being friendly and the summer at its height, we were sitting out of doors beneath the old oak tree. Then he nodded to us, put his hat upon the grass, and waited for our questions. Well, Tonks, what have you been up to all this time? You have sent us no letter, so I suppose you have done little? Thus spoke my uncle, looking at him rather sternly. I also looked at him very closely, and was surprised to find a certain strength of goodness in his face, which I had not observed when I first saw him. His face was thin and narrow, and his cheeks drawn in, and his aquiline nose had had a twist to one side, but the forehead was high and broad, and the lips and chin full of vigor and strong resolution, and the quiet gray eyes expressed both keenness and resource. A thing of this kind takes a lot of time, he said, and if you gents are not satisfied, you'd better say so. I take no man's money when he thinks it thrown away. Hoity toity, man, don't be so hot, my uncle replied, showing much more heat himself. We have not said a word. We are waiting for you. I have not done much. It was not to be expected. I have cleared the ground for further work. It depends upon you whether I go on. Yes, to be sure. Go on, go on. We give you your head, and we are as patient as Job. I suppose you have found out where the scoundrel is? Yes, and I have found out something more than that. I have struck up an acquaintance with him, and he does not know me, though he ought, for he broke my arm last winter, though perhaps he never saw my face, but I wore mustaches and whiskers then, and a green shade through a little kick from a horse. I know of a gambling club he goes to, and there I meet him every night. I have put him up to a trick or two, and we are to rehearse them at his rooms tomorrow night. He is very close, but I shall gradually worm him. But I must be supplied with cash to do it. We will try to arrange about that, said my uncle, and of course you can return it and perhaps win some more. Gambling is a thing I detest with all my heart, and no one can ever win by it in the end. If he did, it would do him no good. But still it is right that the rogues who live by it should be robbed. 
If you pick up a pound or two there, all the better. I think you have done wonders, Tonks, but I suppose you have discovered nothing about... about the lady? Not a single syllable yet, he answered, looking at me as he caught my expression. But I believe I shall if I have my time. But what I have done is a great deal better than shadowing the man, as they call it. I might do that for months and be no wiser. But I am obliged to be very careful. So many people know me. I can never go near him where the racing people are. And I have had one very narrow shave already. But there is another thing you may be glad to know. Bullrag is beginning to make up to a rich lady. He is not sweet upon her, but it seems that he must do it. The thief! exclaimed my uncle. We must never allow that. The scamp would break her heart. I am determined to prevent it. I shall let her know my opinion of him. I know all the villainous lot too well. Don't be excited, Tonks. I can't stand that. Give me her name and address, and I shall go with the van myself if necessary. I should think myself a party to it if I did not stop it. She will soon see what I am. I was going to tell you, but now I had better not, Tony Tonks answered with a sly, dry smile. What good could you do, Mr. Orchardson? The lady would only laugh at you, even if she deigned to see you. Nobody ever laughs at me. And as for deigning to see me, why, the queen herself would do it, the way I should put it. Well, you have a good opinion of yourself. But you must keep quiet in this matter unless you want to spoil my little game. The lady is the Lady Clara Voucher, daughter of the Earl of Clarenhouse, a very great heiress, and not bad-looking. What more he can want is a puzzle to me, but it goes against the grain with him. He shall never have her. He may take his oath of that, said my uncle, bringing down his hand upon his knee, as if he were the father of the peerage. Well, this is a curious affair, thought I. How can he be taking to anybody else after having cast his eyes on Kitty? End of chapter 47